here in the real world. It's not that easy at all. I got in trouble last week. I mentioned in both services that I didn't like country music. We had four families leave the church in the past week <laughs> on account of it. Uh, I didn't mean to cause a great exodus or anything like that. That's just uh, not really particularly fond of country music, but I do listen to it because country music quite often mirrors what people are experiencing out in real life. I find country music to be rather real. I just don't like the twang that they sing it in. I'll tell you something else I don't like, and this is probably going to sound kind of crazy. I don't like Christian movies. Now that sounds really weird for a pastor to say, doesn't it? That he doesn't like Christian movies. I'll tell you why I don't like them. Most of the ones, not all of them, but most of the ones I've seen, at least in the past five years, number one, they have terrible acting. And number two, they are super hokey. I mean, they just have maple syrup thick. And they always end up happily ever after. I mean, think about it. Uh, I was watching a Christian movie recently, and I won't, I won't tell the name of it, but there was it, the whole storyline revolved around this particular man. He, he worked on a, on a certain job, and he and his wife were having marriage problems. He was not a Christian. And it's hard to tell if she was a Christian or not, but he definitely was not a Christian. His parents were Christians, and their lives looked full of peace and joy, with the exception that they were worried about their son. But here you have this man and his wife, and they are having marriage problems. And in the movie, it was implied, though not specifically stated, that his marriage problems were due to the fact that he was not a Christian. Now, I'm certain that that played a part in it. He had a friend he worked with, and this friend uh, is a Christian. But before he became a Christian, he was married, had marriage problems, and he and his wife divorced before, they got, before he got saved. After they divorced, he got saved, met another girl, they married, and they've been living happily ever after. And again, the implication was his divorce in his first marriage was due to the fact that he wasn't a Christian, and now that he is a Christian, it's working great. Well, the first guy that the story is about you go through the whole movie, and he's not a Christian, and they keep having trouble, and everybody's praying for him. And finally, within the, next, the last 20 minutes of the movie, he accepts Christ, which is great. We need more movies with that. He accepts Christ. Their marriage heals. Work gets great, and they live happily ever after. I'm not saying it doesn't happen that way, but I don't find that it happens that way all the time. And I find that if that's going to be the picture of Christianity that we project to the world, we are painting for them a false image. How many Christians do you know who are having a hard time living? How many Christian marriages, if, if we were honest, struggle from time to time? How many Christians do we know of who, who had a messy life, then they got saved, and all of a sudden, ever since that time, life has been just rosy for them? I just don't find that that's a real picture of life, not even the Christian life. Now, somebody might say to me, well, gosh, 
Uh, isn't that the way it is in the Bible? Actually, it's not. In the Bible, and this is one of the reasons I love the Bible so much, it paints a real picture of real life. I think this sugar-coated, happily-ever-after version of the Christian life is something that we have developed in Western Christianity because the Bible knows nothing about it. Jesus said, in this life, you will have tribulation. Jesus said, if you follow me, there will be days when you don't have a pillow under your head. Jesus let us know that the Christian life, while it will be uh, full of joy, will also be full of struggle. It's one of the reasons why I like the book of Ruth. It's really, although it's entitled Ruth, the story revolves around a lady by the name of Naomi. Naomi and Elimelech, natives of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. They have two sons, Malan and Kilian. You remember last week I told you that Malan and Kilian are Hebrew words for weakly and sickly. They decide to leave the famine that's in Bethlehem and they go across the Dead Sea to Moab. When they get to Moab, things don't get much better. Elimelech dies. Then the boys marry Moabite women. They live with them 10 years, no children. And then the boys die. Things have not turned out well for Naomi. Then she decides she's going back to Bethlehem and she and her two daughters-in-law, they head out on the journey. But somewhere along the journey, they stop and they have a discussion about who should proceed. Naomi thinks the girls ought to go back home to Moab, and Orpah says, I agree with you, and she goes back. But Ruth, as you recall, stays with Naomi, and they go back to Bethlehem. And chapter 1 ends with them arriving at Bethlehem just as the barley harvest is beginning. There's a glimmer of hope. There's bread back in the house of bread. And that's where we left off, and we pick up with chapter 2, Verse 1, the title of this message is, is uh, Meeting God in the Leftovers. God in the Leftovers. This is a series from the book of Ruth entitled God in the Real World. And I believe that Ruth's story, Naomi's story, tell us what real life is like when you're trying to follow God. Verse 1, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech. That's her husband, a man of standing. His name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? And the foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And Boaz replied, 
I've been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted, had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, Even if she gathers among the sheaves, do not embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. That's just shy of a bushel. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, this man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until, my, until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and harvest and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Meeting God in the leftovers. There is a phrase in verse number 2, a phrase that I think is very important. It is a quote from Ruth. She is saying this to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and here's the quote. She says, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain. There was a welfare law uh, in the Jewish law, the Old Testament, it went something like this. If you are a farmer, and most everybody was either a farmer or a fisherman, if you are a farmer, it said, and you go through your wheat fields uh, gathering the wheat, you are to leave some behind. You're not to gather it all up, but you're to leave some behind so that the poor among you will have some food to gather when they go out into your fields after you are finished gathering. And they can gather wheat so that everybody can be fed. So this was a provision in the Jewish law for those who were poverty stricken among the people. Now this tells you something about Ruth and Naomi. It tells you about their social standing. It tells you about uh, where they were in terms of their financial ability. Naomi told the ladies in chapter 1 when she arrived back at Bethlehem. You remember they were looking at her and they said, is this Naomi? And some of the folks said, well, I think it is. Kind of looks like her. It's been a few years. Not quite sure. They called her name out, Naomi. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which in Hebrew means bitterness. She said, call me Mara, not Naomi, because when I left you a few years ago, I left full, but now I have come back to you empty. I have nothing. 
I have my daughter-in-law, but her husband is dead. My husband is dead. My boys are dead. We have nothing that we come back to you with. And so, Ruth says to Naomi, let me go out in the fields in the leftovers. Now that leads me to uh, a real world truth that we come out of this, that we, we can glean out of this chapter, and it's simply this. Sometimes God will put you in a strange place picking the leftovers. Sometimes you'll find yourself all alone in a strange place picking up the leftovers. I'm sure that when Naomi and Elimelech left Bethlehem some years before, it had to have been at least 15 or 20 years earlier, when they left with their boys, they had no idea that when she came back, she'd be without her husband and without her boys and without any belongings. She had come back empty. And as such, she was left among those who were the most poverty-stricken in the land. And what they had to do in order to have food was to go out into the fields after the farmers and their harvesters had already gone through the field gathering the prime choices of wheat. The poverty-stricken would come through the land and gather what was left over. Ruth found herself gathering among the leftovers in a very strange place. The probability is that Ruth had never been to Bethlehem before. She was a native of Moab. This chapter tells us that when she, when she came to Bethlehem with Naomi, she left her mother, she left her father, she left her homeland, she left uh, everything that she'd ever known and ever held dear to follow Naomi into Bethlehem. She was in a strange place and she was gathering with the leftovers. There are times in our lives when we will find ourselves feeling like God has left us to gather with the leftovers. A few weeks ago, Amanda and I took Hillary uh, downtown Atlanta on a, uh, a Saturday morning. She had to take a four-hour uh, college entrance exam for pharmacy students. Those tests was to last four hours. It was to start at 8.30 and be finished at 12.30. And Although she's driven, Hillary's driven the interstate, she's not driven downtown Atlanta, and we didn't want her going down there by herself. And so we got up, and we drove her to the building at Georgia State University where they were to have the test, and we let her out and made sure she was in the right place. And while she was in there taking the test, Amanda and I were going to drive over to Atlantic Station. We'd never been to Atlantic Station, that little out, not little, that big outdoor mall uh, downtown Atlanta. And so we were going to go tour Atlantic Station, do a little browsing, and then come back four hours later and pick up Hillary. And so we did that, came back to Georgia State to pick up Hillary at 12.30. Well, what we did not know was they started the exam 45 minutes late. And so we, my plan was, rather than paying to park, because I'm real frugal, you know, rather than paying to park, I'm just going to drive around, you know, uh, Georgia State. So I have driven around for about 30 minutes wasting a whole lot more gas than I would have on a parking ticket, you know. And finally I decide something's not right, and so I parallel park just across the street from the building where Hillary is taking an exam, right? I'm sitting there with my car running. I don't want to leave the car uh, because I don't want anybody giving me a ticket in case I was parked in the wrong place. I think I was parked in the right place, but just in case I wasn't, I didn't want anybody giving me a ticket. While I was in the car, I looked down the corner of the street. There was a garbage can there. And there was a man who walked up to the garbage can. 
and he started rummaging through the garbage can. He picked up a bag, looked like one of these plastic Walmart bags. You've seen them. And he starts going through the Walmart bag. Some things he picked out and he'd lay to the side on the sidewalk beside the garbage can. There was a box that came out of that Walmart bag. He opened it up and he looked at it. He picked up what looked to be what was left over from a buffalo wing. And he put it back in the box, closed the box, and put it back in the Walmart bag. There were some other things in the garbage can that he picked up and he looked at. I couldn't see them and he put them in the Walmart bag. He was there for probably 10 minutes. When he got through, he took the Walmart bag and he held it in his left hand and he reached over and all the things that he had stacked up on the sidewalk out of the garbage can, he neatly put them back in the garbage can. And when he had finished putting everything back in the garbage can, still with the Walmart bag, which had some stuff in it in his left hand, he crossed the walkway, the crosswalk at the intersection, and diagonally across the intersection from that one garbage can, there was another garbage can, and he went to it, and I watched him do the same thing in that garbage can, rummaging through the leftovers. Some things he would put in the Walmart bag, some things he would leave, but he always left the garbage can very neat, as neat as a garbage can can be. And after going through the second garbage can, he took his Walmart bag, and he disappeared into a dark alley in between two of the buildings at Georgia State University. When I read this chapter, the second chapter of Ruth, about Ruth going into the leftovers, I thought about this man. You see, it's hard for me to imagine what it would be like for poor people to go out into a field after the farmers have gotten through and rummage through. I mean, I can get the picture, but I can't really relate to it, can't really think about it. But when I read this and I thought about that man at that garbage can, rummaging through the leftovers, and I tried to picture Ruth. Instead of this man, I picture Ruth coming to the intersection and the garbage can. Can you see her? Can you see Ruth? She's going through the garbage can. She picks up a Walmart bag. She finds a buffalo wing that still has some meat on it, and she keeps it in a box and puts it in her Walmart bag. She's working the leftovers. You ever felt like in your own life you've been working the leftovers? I'm not talking about rummaging through a garbage can, but I'm talking about just struggling through life. And, and have you ever found yourself thinking, hey, you know, this is not the way life's supposed to be for a person who's following Christ. You may say, well, I've never thought about it that way at all. Boy, I run into people all the time who've thought about it that way. I run into people all the time who have run upon hard times and they're thinking, preacher, they even ask me, Jimmy, what in the world have I done wrong? Why is this happening to me and my family? I didn't think this was supposed to happen to families who love the Lord and who are serving the Lord. Well, in, re in the real world, Bad things happen to good people. In the real world, bad things happen to godly people. In the real world, there will be times when you will find yourself in a strange place picking the leftovers. There's another verse in this chapter, verse number 7. And in that verse, there's a quote. It says, she went into the field and she has worked steadily from morning until now. That's a quote from one of Boaz's workers. Boaz had these harvesters who would come in and cut the, the, the uh, prime choices of wheat. And when Boaz showed up, he called one of his workers over to the side. And he says, who is this woman here? And he says, well, it's the Moabitess woman. 
who came with Naomi, and she came up and asked us if she could work the leftovers, and Boaz, guess what? She went into the field, and she has worked steadily from morning until now. She's been working all day. First job I ever had was working for my uncle Monty Holland. He was a hay farmer. He, he uh, grew hay and sold hay. He raised chickens, and he cleaned out chicken houses. He had six chicken houses, so we'd get there at sunup, and we'd go in and we'd work with the chickens. And then when he sold the chickens, we would go in and he would, with a, with a, a bobcat, you know what a bobcat is, he'd go, he would go in and he would scoop up all the chicken manure and he would load it in this big spreader truck. And then we'd drive out to his hay fields and we'd spread this chicken manure all over the hay field because everybody knows chicken manure makes hay grow because hay's trying to get the air with the chicken manure on the hay. So we would work the chickens, then we would take the chicken manure, spread it on the hay field, and then when the hay was a certain height, we'd go out and cut it, fluff it, rake it, gather it, bale it, and we'd take it out to the barn. And once it was in the barn, we'd have to wait until July to do this. I don't know why hay, hay, hay workers do. In July, you go to the barn, you restack every bale of hay. I mean, it's like 115, 20 degrees in that barn, you have to restack the hay. I like working 9 to 5 with about an hour lunch and four or five breaks throughout there, you know. My Uncle Monty didn't believe in any of that. You caught lunch on the road, and he says, I want you to show up at sunup. I said, how late are we going to work, Uncle Monty? What time are we going to get off? He said, dark 30. I said, because I'd never heard dark 30 before. I said, what is dark 30? He said, it's 30 minutes after dark. I couldn't believe that. I thought it was child abuse. I mean, I was a teenager in high school. I thought that was child abuse. I can imagine Ruth getting up, sun up, and she's working all day long. She's working till dark 30, out there working these leftovers. And that leads me to real world truth number two. When you find yourself in a strange place working the leftovers, do something. Do something. When you find yourself in discouragement, when you find yourself on the brink of depression, do something. Now, folks, I'm not a psychologist, and I'm not a psychiatrist, and I'm not a licensed counselor. But I will tell you from my own personal experience that times whenever I have just been bowled over in discouragement, the very thing that I did not need to do was decide not to go anywhere or to decide not to get up, or to decide I'm not going to do anything today. I just don't want to be around anybody. I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to do anything. The temptation in times like that is great, just to stay put. It really is. And I'm not saying that there aren't times when we need quiet time. Certainly we do. But I will tell you that the last thing that I needed whenever I was bowled over in those times of discouragement was to say, I'm not going to do anything at all. Not going to be around anybody. You see, we need each other, and we need to be active. Naomi and Ruth, they came back empty, and they came back ashamed, and everybody knew that they were empty, and everybody had heard what had happened to them, and for Ruth to get up in the morning and go out into the leftovers and gather what was left over for her and Naomi to eat, it was an embarrassing thing. But the alternative was to sit in their house and just slowly die 
when you find yourself in a strange place, and in the real world there will be times when you will, get up and do something. There's a final phrase. It's actually part of two verses. In verse 4 there's a phrase that says, Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. Very important phrase. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. And then later in verse 20, Naomi, who is speaking of Boaz, says this to Ruth. She says, he is one of our kinsmen redeemers. I think that's an interesting term. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. Now this leads me to real world truth number three. The final real world truth I'm going to give you in this passage is simply this. God will meet you in the leftovers. There will be times when God will allow you to, to find yourself in a strange place working the leftovers. When you're in that strange place working the leftovers, do something. Don't just, don't just sit in the darkness, but get up and do something. Force yourself to if you can. But number three is that God will meet you in the leftovers. Now let me show you where, where we find this. Boaz foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a foreshadowing, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to show you the ways in which he foreshadows Jesus. First of all, he's in the same family tree of David. Boaz will have a son named Obed, and Obed will have a son named Jesse, and Jesse will have a son named David. David will have a great, 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 great grandson whose name is Jesus. They're both of the family tree of David, both Boaz and Jesus. Second, Boaz is associated with Bethlehem. Verse 4 says, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. Jesus, where, where did he arrive from? Well, we know he arrived from heaven. He left his throne in heaven to come here. But where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem. When I read this passage, I thought about the Magi, you know, who came from the east. They stopped by Herod's place. Herod says, listen, uh, can you tell me where this Christ child is going to be born? I, I hear that, that there's some king of the Jews going to be born, and I'm the king of the Jews, so where is he going to be? And, and they said, well, in Bethlehem of Judah, for it is written by the prophet, O Bethlehem, though thou art the least among the princes of Judah, yet out of thee shall come one who will be the ruler of my people. Boaz arrived out of Bethlehem. Jesus arrived out of Bethlehem. And then third... Jesus is known, among other things, as our Redeemer. And what was it that Naomi said about Boaz? Naomi says to Ruth, he is our kinsman Redeemer. There was this law in ancient Jewish culture that if a man and woman were married and she was of childbearing age and he died, leaving her a widow, the man's nearest relative, usually it would be a brother, but if it's not a brother, his nearest male relative would have the opportunity of marrying this widow and they would have children in the name of the deceased husband. It's kind of a weird law, weird from our standpoint, but for them it was a way of carrying on a family line that had lost its hope. So it was a way of reinvigorating hope. And so here you have Naomi. Now she's beyond childbearing years, but here is Ruth. Ruth is still of childbearing age. Her husband has died. 
And so according to this law, the next relative ought to be able to come and marry Ruth. Well, there is a relative closer than Boaz, but as we'll find in due time, he doesn't work out so well, and Boaz comes. Now think about that. Boaz and Jesus of the line of Jesus, uh, Boaz and Jesus of the line of David. Boaz and Jesus, both from Bethlehem. Boaz and Jesus, both referred to as my Redeemer. And where does Ruth meet Boaz? She meets him while she's picking the leftovers. I know some people in our church who feel, though they love the Lord, they feel like they're out in a strange place picking from the leftovers. I know some folks who feel like they're isolated and alone out in the field, picking the leftover buffalo wings from a garbage can. And they're wondering where God is. And they're getting up every morning even though they don't feel like it, and they still go to work, or they go to school, or they go about and see their families. They get up and they're doing something. There's a word of hope for us from this passage of Scripture. And that word of hope is... God will meet you in the leftovers. And he won't leave you there. Now, believe it or not, that's the real world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we don't always understand your ways. We don't understand the things you do, the things you allow. But we know that you're God, and we know that you are our Redeemer, and we know that we've never been loved by anybody like we're loved by you. Lord, in this congregation, there's bound to be someone who has not received you as their Savior and Lord. There's bound to be somebody that you've been dealing with in their heart. Lord, maybe this is the day they need to come and invite Jesus to be their Savior. Lord, let them know. Lord, there may be someone here who's saved. They have a relationship with you, but they have drifted away from you. Lord, here in this place, they'll be given the opportunity to renew that commitment to Christ. Oh, Lord, only you know that there are people in this building right now who, yes, they have been saved, they have a relationship with Christ, but, Lord, they haven't officially planted their family in a local church. And you've been dealing with them. And Lord, I pray that you'd help them to know whether or not today is the day to be a part of this church family. Oh, Lord, I pray for your spirit to move throughout this place. Lord, help us to respond to what you've got to say. And Lord, especially for those who are picking the leftovers or they feel like they are. God, encourage us again and remind us that it's in the leftovers that we often find God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.